Kids on the Rock, you guys can go. We're trying to, uh, we're trying to keep announcements down to a minimum so we can have time because they say I preach way too long. Amen. So make sure you get a bulletin and look at those things. I think uh, Maddie Tharp has a, a wedding shower today at 2.30. And there's several different things. Make sure you get a bulletin and look at those, um, uh, those announcements in there. Last week, after the sermon in Galatians chapter 3, uh, I was asked if preaching through Galatians seemed repetitive. Um, not in a bad way, it was, it was in a good way, because the main point of the book of Galatians and all the sections that we're going through, I mean, it's pretty much the same in every section. It is salvation by faith in Jesus alone. The gospel is enough. We don't have to add to it. Uh, we don't have to keep rituals or ceremonies or laws or anything to be right with God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. And when I was asked that question, I thought, you know, it, it does kind of seem repetitive. But if there's one thing that I want to repeat over and over and over again, it's that the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the only hope for sinners. Jesus is able to save. He's able to transform the most wicked of hearts. You see that in the Apostle Paul. You see it in my own wicked heart. Jesus and the gospel of Christ is the only hope for a culture that is degrading into immorality at an astonishing pace. But the gospel is also for Christians as well. The gospel is the fuel of our growth in discipleship. It's the hub around which all of the Christian life turns. It's not learning new principles and learning better things and, and doing better. Of course, we all need to do better. It's not learning the next trend or the next fad or the next, the next book or the next study that comes out. Walking more and more in step with the gospel, which is the way Paul phrases it in Galatians, is growing in the Christian life. That's what it looks like. So it's worth preaching it to ourselves again and again and again and again. And it's a joy for me to be able to get to do it today again. So by now, if you've been here through the messages in Galatians, um, I'm sure you understand the purpose and the theme of Galatians already, but I'm going to tell you anyway because that's what we do. The Galatians were being taught that in order to be right before God, in order to reach the standard of righteousness and be heirs of the promises of God, the gospel's not enough. You must trust in Jesus, yes, but you must also, if you're a Gentile, you must be circumcised. You must walk according to the law of Moses. You must do all of these things. You must live like the Jewish people have always lived. The people of God have always lived. And Paul is writing Galatians to defend the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, with nothing else added to it. Last week, we walked through chapter 3, verses 15 through 26, and Paul showed us there in that section the relationship between the law and the promise. He showed the Galatians that the law of Moses was never intended to give life. It was never intended to be added to the gospel promise that God made to Abraham of salvation by faith. And Paul laid that case out very clearly. 
The law was added, Paul said in that previous section, to increase transgressions because of transgressions. It was given to show humanity the depth of our sin and hopelessness. He said the law is a guardian, a tutor, a schoolmaster that drives us to the Savior as the only hope to inherit the promise by faith. Let me read verses 21 through 26 in chapter 3. We did these last week, but this is just to catch you up so we can begin again in verse 25 and 26. Last week we talked about these verses. It says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He's saying there was no law given that could give life. But the scripture, look what it says, imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian or our schoolmaster or our tutor. Uh, we talked about the fact that he was a disciplinarian until Christ came. And this is why in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And that's where we left off next, last week. In this next section, Paul is going to explain more fully who Christ has made us in the gospel and the foolishness of trying to add anything to it. The first thing he does as we go back and pick up verses 25 and 26 again is that he shows us that we're united with Christ through faith, through faith alone. We just read 25 and 26, but it says, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you of as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now let's break this down just kind of a chunk at a time. He just finished saying that the law was a guardian, a disciplinarian to drive us to Christ. And now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come and we've trusted in his life, his death, his resurrection for our salvation, we're no longer under a guardian, he said. The prison of the law has opened and we are let out to freedom. Now, does that mean that we throw the law in the trash and we're just free to sin all we want to now that we no longer are under the guardian? No, we're walking through Exodus right now in the midst of all the laws on Wednesday nights. It means that we no longer need the cage anymore. We no longer need the prison of the law because by faith Jesus has transformed us in the gospel and now the law of God is written on our hearts. We live by the Spirit. Our souls in, in regeneration now that, that the Holy Spirit has come, our souls can cry out with David's in, as he does in Psalm 119.97 where he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. We're free from the condemnation of the law, the penalty of the law, and Christ has now done what the law could not do. He has given us life. He's transformed our hearts so that we now 
desire to walk in holiness. We long to obey his statutes. Paul says, through faith, you are now sons of God. Verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. He's telling the Galatians, you're Gentiles, yes, you don't follow the Jewish laws, you don't follow the Jewish ceremonies or the rituals or all the things that are laid out there. But in Christ, you are all sons of God. You don't have to be circumcised to be right with God. You don't have to do the rituals or the rites to be children of God. You're children of God through faith in Jesus and nothing else. Then Paul goes on to explain how this has come to be. Verse 27, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, baptized is, is a word we use all the time. It's a Greek word that's left untranslated in our English Bibles. It simply means to be immersed. Baptized into Christ means to be immersed into Christ. To be, it happens when we're born again. We are immersed into Christ. We are united with Christ in his death, raised with him in new life. We saw a picture of it uh, earlier as we baptized Eliana. And water baptism symbolizes that union. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality that has already taken place. Water baptism is the testimony to the world, to the church, that, we are, that we've died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. So there are some that use this verse and others like it to, to teach that uh, baptism itself, water baptism saves us or it's a point of time where the Spirit indwells us and we're not saved before then or dwelt with the Spirit before then. Listen, to read that into this verse, after all that Paul has said in Galatians is incredible to me. The whole letter is devoted to the theme that we're justified by faith alone and not any outward work or any outward ritual or rite or anything, including circumcision. Paul is not here all of a sudden changing his tune, reversing what he said and, and saying, well, there's no really right, there's no right or ritual that you have to do to be saved. Oh, by the way, except this one. He's not saying that. Of course not. He's speaking of a spiritual reality of being immersed, united with Christ. And we know this because he says, if you've been baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. He's talking about a spiritual reality. He's speaking about union with Christ. The language is, is of one who, who puts on a piece of clothing or a garment. We're joined, united with Christ. We are in Christ, as the New Testament says over and over again. That means... That the Father looks at you, born-again believer, through the lens of his own Son. The righteousness and holiness that is distinctive of Christ alone is ours because we're in him. The payment for sin that he made belongs to us because we are in him. The love that God the Father has for His own perfect Holy Son is ours because we are in Him. Man, that would have been a good time to say amen. amen. Too late now. Don't do it. Don't you understand what this means? If you're in Christ, if you've been born again by the Spirit of God, there is nothing that you can do to make the Father love you more than he loves you in Christ. There's nothing that you can do to increase your standing or your acceptance or your righteousness because Christ's standing and his righteousness is absolutely perfect.
in Christ, we're, we're presented as perfect and blameless before the Father, the New Testament says. We are seen through his perfection because we are in him. And there's no higher rung on the ladder to reach for. Can you imagine when the Holy Son of God, after completing his work that he was sent to do and ascended back into heaven, walked into the throne room of glory? Can you imagine how the Father felt as his Son, God of very God, the second person of the eternal Trinity, walked back in as God and man into the throne room of God, sat down at the right hand of the Father? Can you imagine what the Father felt? You think he said, well, son, you did good, but there's a few things we need to talk about. There was that one time that you... No! Perfection, holiness, righteousness, goodness. And he sees you through his son. Through that perfection. Taking all that into account, don't you see how foolish it sounds to say, well, I know you got the gospel and I know you've trusted in Jesus and been born again, but you need to add this one other thing on top of that to improve your... St- are you kidding? And not only are we united with Christ, but in Christ, he tells the Gentiles, we're also united to one another. Verse 28 said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Once again, some use this verse to teach now that gender doesn't exist, and that's a hot topic today. Or or that God, the God-ordained gender roles in the home and the church don't exist anymore. They're abolished in Christ. But follow the argument of the passage. When Paul says that Christ has abolished these distinctions, it doesn't mean they no longer exist. It means they no longer matter to make you right with God or to have fellowship with one another. That's what the Jews were telling the Gentiles. You can't be like us. We can't eat with you. We can't, we can't fellowship with you because you are not sons of God. You have to add these things on top of the gospel. He's saying that in Christ, none of these differences, none of these things create barriers to fellowship, not with God and not with one another. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. When Christ came, God's promise was fulfilled in Abraham's seed. All the nations of the earth would be blessed. This includes all nations, all races, all people, whether male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, black, white, whatever other distinction you want to. We are one in Christ Jesus. We are united together, brothers and sisters in the family of God. The little 10-year-old child that lives in Africa and is running down a dirt road right now on the other side of the world, if they're in Christ, they have more in common with me than anything that differs between our cultures, between our heritage, between the way we look. We are united in Christ. We are one. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that unity overshadows and destroys all other distinctions that separate us. We're one in Christ. Paul's point here is that there's no reason to compel the Gentiles to live like Jews. We're united in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, what unifies us is so much greater than all the other differences about us. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is obvious when he says in verse 29, if you are Christ, 
then you are Abraham's offspring. You are Abraham's seed. You are heirs according to the promise. Christ is the natural son, the true seed, the true son of God. But by faith, we are in him. We are in Christ. His inheritance is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And we are heirs according to the promise. We are co-heirs with Christ. And because we're united to Christ by faith, we're also redeemed from slavery and adopted. He says, as he explains into chapter 4, I mean that the heir, he just said you're heirs according to the promise, and you were under a guardian, you were under the law, but he says to explain that, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we, he's talking about himself and the Jews, also when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you, notice the change in pronoun, we now because you you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you Gentiles are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now let's take these apart and look at them. No. Yes, there it is. Y'all are quiet. Everything Okay. This section shows how our identity in Christ has come to pass. First, Paul uses this example. He's using it from the Roman world. When an heir of a Roman estate was a child, he was placed under stewards and guardians and managers. That's what it says in verse 1 and 2. As long as he's a child, no different than a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Technically, in the, in the Roman, Greek-Roman world, technically he, he, this child is the heir. He is the, it literally says, the lord of the house. But practically, he's no different than a slave. The child is told when to get up, when to go to sleep, when to study, when to exercise, when to eat, how to do these things. He's disciplined in all of the rules. He lives under the rules of the guardian and the managers and all of the people that are over him. For all practical purposes, he has no freedom at all. He's the heir, but he's under the stewardship of others until the date set by his father when he would be considered a full-grown son able to inherit uh, the, the inheritance of the estate. And Paul applies this example to the Jews in verse 3. He says in verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now, by elementary principles of this world... In the context of 3 and 4, he means the law. It's clear from the context. He said in chapter 3 that the law imprisons us, that the law was our guardian. And here he says we're enslaved to it in the same way. And in the next verses, verses 4 and 5, he said, but Jesus came and he redeemed us from the law. So some of your translations here in verse 3 might say that it's possible to translate elementary, elementary principles as elementary, elemental. Okay, slow down. Elementary principles as elementary... Ele oh, I'm, I'm going to keep going until I get it. 
elementary principles as elemental spirits. Some of your translations may say that. That's a possible translation of this word. But more often in the New Testament, it's translated as basic principles or rudimentary things, the the ABCs. I think that's what Paul means here. But how is the law of God, the elementary principles of this world, I mean, this is important for us to understand because we're going to see this again in verse 9. I think Paul is using the elementary principles of this world to describe what we call legalism. Legalism is not saying that sin is wrong. So get that out of your mind. It's not calling believers to repent of sin. That's what we're commanded to do. Legalism is not examining the evidence of salvation in my life or in someone's life. Legalism is believing that by keeping rules, keeping laws, we're earning right standing or favor from God. And legalism is the most basic religious principle in the history of the world. Thinking that you must do works or rituals to earn blessings or favor from the gods has been universal in world history. The pagans offered their sacrifices, their rituals, their festivals, celebrations to appease the pagan gods and to gain blessing and a good harvest and fertility and prosperity and all of those things. And though God never intended it, the Jews also came to think that keeping the law was the way that you earn God's favor. Even today, legalistic thinking dominates the entire world. Biblical Christianity is the only faith ever that is not based in works righteousness. That's why Paul can label trying to earn righteousness before God through the law as being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. They were taking God's holy law, his good law, and using it to try to earn standing, to merit things before God. So the basic principles of the world, the elementary principles of the world is legalism, regardless of what form it takes. But Paul shows how we've been delivered, how the Jews have been delivered and redeemed from this slavery in verse 4. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When he says the fullness of time had come, when God's purpose from the beginning finally came to pass, the seed of the woman came to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus, the eternal son of God, took on flesh and entered into his own creation. He was born of a woman, meaning that he was fully human, that he might redeem humans. And he was born under the law, born a Jew, subject to the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul described the law as a prison. It imprisons everything under sin. But Jesus had no sin. He was not subject to imprisonment under the law, but he willingly submitted himself to the law. He entered into the jail cell and by his perfect obedience fulfilled the righteous demands of the law. He chose to enter into the prison in order to free, to redeem all those who were held captive there. He was born under the law to redeem us who were under the law, he says in verse 5. He purchased our freedom by his life, by his death, by his resurrection. And here's the amazing thing. 
He didn't just buy us, redeem us as, as slaves. He didn't just say, okay, yeah, I, I'm gonna purchase their freedom. Okay, now you're free. Go free, go run play. He purchased our freedom and then adopted us into his family. He says, he redeemed us so that we might receive adoption as, son, as sons. Because of Jesus, all of us who are sons and daughters of Adam are adopted into the family of God and made heirs to the covenant promise. We have received the status, the standing of sons because we are in Christ, which means we are heirs. That's why he says sons. Your translation might call it sons and daughters, but it says sons because the firstborn son received the inheritance. Our status now is one who is receiving the inheritance. But not only do we have that status, we also enjoy the experience of being children of God. In verse 6, he says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Our birth certificate isn't just stamped, adopted. We also have intimate fellowship with our Father. As God himself comes to dwell within us. That's the promise of the covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of you. We are united with Christ in the gospel. In such a way that his relationship with the father. As the son of God. Heir to the promise. Is now our relationship with the father. As adopted sons of God. And heirs to the promise. Paul says the Spirit is sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word that Jesus himself used speaking to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Paul's point here is that the Galatian Gentiles, without becoming Jews, without keeping all the ceremony, without keeping the law of Moses and all the things that went along with that, The Galatians can cry, Abba, Father, in the same way that the very Son of God cries, Abba, Father. Because we are now true sons and daughters of God. We have the status of children of God. We have fellowship with God as His children. There's nothing else that needs to be added to that. Are you kidding What is it that you think you can do that's going to improve on your status or your standing before God? Paul's point is that the Gentiles of Galatia have no need to add circumcision or ritual or rules or laws or works to make themselves complete before God. In fact, he comes to this conclusion in verse 7. He says, so you, not we anymore, but you, You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so what application do we draw from that for us? Fortunately, Paul goes on to apply it himself. In the next section, he basically tells them to live as children of God through faith. Live as who you are. Live as who he has made you. He says to the Gentiles, remember, he went from we to you. He said, you are sons of God. And now he says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. 
But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, there's our words again, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So Paul turns specifically to speak to the Gentiles in Galatia. And he says, you guys, you're Gentiles. You came out of the Roman, the Greek pagan religions. You remember back when you didn't know God at all? You were enslaved to observing the feasts and the ceremonies and the rituals and the rites and the sacrifices of all the pagan religions. You, you were working to earn your favor from all the gods who are not really gods at all. And now you've been freed from all that slavery. You're freed from all forms of work righteousness that enslaved you to serve all those false gods. And now you've come to know the true God. In fact, even more, to be known by the true God, meaning you're in relationship with him. And you've received all this in Christ through faith. And now you want to go back to the same slavery of legalism as before, just with Jewish laws instead of pagan laws. You want to be slaves to works again, to legalism again, after you have been delivered by Christ and you are already sons of God. You want to go back to what he calls the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world. Back to legalism. He says you want to just go back to observing days and months and seasons and years, which used to define your pagan worship, and now... You just want to substitute all that for the sacred times of the, and the rituals of the Jews, thinking that makes you right with God. You're going back to the same religion you came out of. You're just adding a different twist to it. Paul told us earlier, that was never God's intention for the law. It's a schoolmaster to lead you to Christ. To put it in today's language, I think Paul is asking him, are you insane? You already have what you're trying to work for. You already have the inheritance and you're going back to try to do things in order to get what he's already given you by faith in Christ. Paul says, I'm worried about you guys. I'm worried I may have labored in vain among you. I'm worried that you may not have trusted Christ at all if you think going back to works is the way to be right with God. He says, you were made sons. You were made children of God. You have been fully accepted, adopted in God's family by trusting Jesus, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and now you're wanting to go earn something that's already been given to you. Paul is basically warning them here. Don't go back. Walk in the adoption of Christ that he has given you. Be who you are. If you've trusted in Christ, you are a child of God. You are an heir to the promise. Be who you are. Walk in that. Hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your faith. You have everything in Christ, and in Him you are perfectly accepted. That is who you are. There's nothing more for you to add. Nothing more for you to do. And we've seen throughout Galatians how we often fall into that thinking. Even though we would never say it and we, would never, we know it's not true, we fall into thinking that way. 
When I go out and I just do wonderful things for Christ and, and my ministry is just excelling and I'm leading people to Jesus and I'm just obeying all of God's rules and all of it. If I do it just as great as I can do it on a certain day, there's something that wells up in me and said, whoo, God sure is proud of me today. I sure have. At, I bet you're glad you saved me, Lord. We'd never say that, but that's how we think. And when we go out and we fail miserably and we, we break down and we don't do the things that God's called us to do and we do the things that God's not called us to do and we, we end up like Paul in Romans 7 who said, I, I, I try to do, but I can't do and the things that I want to do, I don't end up doing and we just feel defeated and broken and, 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 and we're just convicted of all this stuff. We have a tendency to feel well, that's it. I've failed. God doesn't love me anymore. God's given up on me. Not if you're in Jesus Christ. He sees you the same on the best day that you obey him as he does on your worst day of failing. If you are in Jesus Christ and born again. Listen, today we need to continually be reminded of who we are in Christ. Don't fall back into seeking your worth or your value or your identity in anything other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To do so is to be enslaved to things that can never satisfy you, can never provide what they promise, can never provide what Christ has already given you. Trust in Him. Believe what the scriptures say about the gospel, about Jesus Christ, about who he is and what he has done, about who you are in Christ. Base all of your thinking on God's word. Don't judge God's word by your feelings or your thinking. Judge your feelings and your thinking by God's word. Remember the truth of salvation, what it means to live for God. Christian, we don't throw the law away. Right now, we're going through it in Exodus, and we're showing how it applies in the Christian life. We don't throw the law away. Christians follow Christ. They obey Christ. That's one of the evidences of salvation. But that is a work of God in you. That's not what you're doing to merit favor before Him or to earn righteousness before Him or to receive something from Him. When God foretold the new covenant back in Ezekiel, he told us what he would do. He says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you, within you and cause you, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So if your heart loves Christ and longs to follow Christ and desires Christ and wants to obey Christ, that's the work of God in you. And everything that flows from that, all your obedience, all your good works, all of the stuff that you do, everything that flows from that, praise God for it. Don't praise you for it. That's God's work in you. And yes, that is an evidence that God has saved you and that you are a new creature, is that you have this new heart that desires to walk in his statutes and desires to be careful to obey his rules. That is an evidence of salvation. I'm thinking about starting 1 John after Galatians to show you the other side, the life we live in Christ. But understand, none of that makes you right with God. A sheep goes, bah, 
That was funny. Come on. <laughs> a sheep buys, or whatever you call what they do. What do you call what they do? Meow. Not meow. What, what world are you living in? A sheep goes by because he's a sheep, not in order to become a sheep. We live for Christ because we are sons and daughters of God, not to become sons and daughters of God. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work backwards. So the only question before you today is, are you in Christ? That's it. Are you in Christ? If God is your father through Christ, he will discipline you. He will guide you. He will lead you by his spirit. You won't walk by the letter of the law. You will walk by the spirit of God as he leads you to obey him, to follow him. The question is, are you in Christ? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and his payment for your sin in the gospel? Until you do that, until God does a work in your heart, all of the working you do, all of the striving you do, all of the obeying laws that you do, all of the trying to reform your behavior and be better and do better and turn over new leaf and, and live a better life, all of that is meaningless to make you right before God. Only Jesus Christ can do that in the gospel. You must trust in Christ and repent of your sin, but also repent of your works. They can't make me right before you, God. I need you. I'm trusting in Jesus alone as my righteousness. The law cannot make you right with God. Trust in the gospel. Trust in Jesus that he died for my sin. That he was raised for my justification. And Jesus will make you right with God. He will redeem you and adopt you into the family of God. He will save you and he will lead you in holiness before God as you walk in the Spirit. Trust in Jesus. Give Him your heart and life and let's walk as who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. Father, I just pray that you would take the words that we have read, your infallible, inerrant, perfect word, and that you would sear them upon our hearts. And God, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, I pray that, that just the word that we have read today from your scripture would be emblazoned upon them, that they would go from here knowing that the only way to be righteous, to be right, to be heaven-bound, to be adopted by you is through faith in Jesus Christ. God, let them call upon you today. Draw them to you today. Show them what you have given in sending your son to die for sin, to be raised for our justification. And I pray that they would call out upon you. And as believers, God, tomorrow we're walking out into a world that's filled with ungodliness. We're walking out into a world that's celebrating sin and wickedness. God, we need to proclaim the truth. We need to speak the truth in love. But as we're surrounded so often, we need to remember the gospel, who we are in Christ. And what you've called us to do. Father, I pray that you would keep us from ever sliding into works righteousness or doubting what we have in the gospel or 
measuring your word by our feelings or our successes or our failures. God, help us to remember what you have done, who you are, and the promises that you have made, and everything else will take care of itself. God, I pray that you would just help us to focus upon the gospel. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here. If you want to come, I'd love to pray with you. Trust in Jesus. Give him your heart today. Will you stand with me?